This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast, Into England's Past. I'm Charles Rowe. We're here with new episodes every Thursday, so make sure you subscribe to stay up to date. Now this week, as we close in on the shortest day of the year and even darker, colder nights, we're delving into stories of ghosts, ghouls and hauntings. And with us is Dr. Michael Carter, who's a senior properties historian with English Heritage. Now, Michael, why do you think there is a tradition of telling ghost stories during the winter months and in particular at Christmas? Well, I think you touched upon it in your introduction. It's getting cold and dark, isn't it? It's the season of darkness and the leaves have all fallen. The landscape is looking increasingly dead. And it just seems suitable for spooky tales of the supernatural. And indeed, Shakespeare in his winter's tale says, A sad tale's best for winter. I have one of sprites and goblins. And you can imagine people gathering around the fireside on long winter nights and entertaining one another or scaring themselves out of their wits with various ghost stories. And it's something that really takes off in the 19th century. Think about Frankenstein, early 19th century novel by Mary Shelley and its snowy wasteland landscapes. The ghost stories of the great 19th century novelists Elizabeth Gaskell and Wilkie Collins often have wintry backdrops and wintry settings. And of course then there's Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, probably the most famous of Christmas ghost stories of all. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners will be familiar with Henry James's Turn of the Screw. And it starts off with the story had held us round the fire, sufficiently breathless, but except the obvious remark that it was gruesome as on Christmas Eve. And another name of, that will be familiar to uh, aficionados of ghost stories will be Montague or M.R. James. He describes them as being read to patient friends, usually at Christmas times. And this tradition of ghost story writing, ghost storytelling, horror in winter months has been sustained into recent times. Think about The Shining, Stephen King. And uh, recently a very, very good ghost story, which I thoroughly recommend, is Michelle Pickhaver's Dark Matter, set in the frozen Arctic. So effectively, what's happening in nature with leaves falling, frost appearing and snow appearing as well, this sort of spectral white of, um, you know, what you'd expect a ghost to maybe look like. And the fact that everyone's indoors because it's cold and they're trying to entertain themselves around a fire, that completely lends itself to these fantastical imaginings, which are sort of almost internal evocations of what's going on outside. Yeah, it's appropriate to the season and also what's lurking in the dark. And that's especially important for um, a type of medieval ghost story that we're going to be talking about presently. Mm. In effect, what's going on around the Halloween time still very much lasts all the way through into December. That theme of the dead and the undead. 
it's fascinating why does Halloween have this association with the dead and it's possible it's because it's associated with you know the change of seasons and perhaps even the year changing does the the Celtic New Year the pre-Roman pre-Christian year in, in the British Isles and Northern Europe change around that time of year or is it because the two great Christian feasts of the dead all souls and all saints fall around Halloween tide you know indeed Halloween means all Hallows Eve that's eve of all saints day the next day is all souls the commemoration of all christian souls absolutely so how far back in history do ghost stories go well i think it's fair to say that belief in ghosts in some form or another is common across all world cultures but thinking about western traditions they go back to the dawn of recorded history that's homer's iliad written in the 8th century but based upon much older oral stories and you know we have then that the ghost of patroclus are coming to achilles and in the classical world the world of greece and rome and especially rome you have especially elaborate funeral rites to appease the spirits of the dead of the ancestors who could wander in the margins of the living world uh, the living made aware of, of of their supernatural presence by various sounds and apparitions now the advent of christianity originally challenged all this the dead by their very nature are not able to involve themselves in the affairs of the living wrote saint augustine the great theologian of the early middle ages he is bishop of uh, hippo regis in north africa at the end of the fourth early fifth century he's regarded as one of the great teachers or doctors of the western church Indeed, in early Christian writings, ghosts are dismissed as illusions, nothing more than dreams, phantoms of the mind. It was a duty of good Christians to pray for the souls of the departed, but the fate of the dead was down to a just and merciful God. You touched on, obviously, the religious aspect there. I have heard that monks were particularly keen on telling ghost stories, despite this fact that the dead should not be involving themselves in the affairs of the living. Is that true? Well, indeed, yeah. The Middle Ages is a huge period of time. It goes from late antiquity right through in England till about 1530, 1540. So there's a lot of change during that. And many of the surviving ghost stories from the Middle Ages do indeed come down to us via monastic sources. And we find some in the pages of Bede, you know, that's 7th, early 8th century England. But they multiply around the year 1000. Now, monks are recording ghost stories, not just because they enjoy the pleasing terror that are afforded by ghost stories as we understand them. For the most part, the ghost stories recorded by monks have explicitly pious and didactic purposes. They're very much part, they're a reflection of the moral and religious universe of the monks. That's very interesting. So in some respects, a kind of extension of biblical texts, but just in their, well, own, in their own language. It's not really biblical text. It's more theological text. And it's, right. and it's, and, and it's an understanding of the fate of the, the soul after death. And you can't really understand medieval monastic ghost stories unless you place them within the religious and moral framework of the Middle Ages. So they're a storytelling device then? 
well, they occur often within didactic literature and that mm. uh, they're set up as exemplar sometimes. And now that's not to say that the monks who were writing them didn't believe them to be a record of true events, but they're very, very much an expression of medieval belief, indeed Catholic belief to this day, about the fate of the souls of the departed after death. And they're destined for one of three places the souls of people who'd lived especially holy lives and they died without the stain of sin on their souls, well, they'd be on an express elevator all the way up to heaven. The very wicked who hadn't repented of their sins would go straight to hell. But there was an intermediate state called purgatory. And that's where most people's souls would actually end up. You confess your sins, you make good for your sins before death, but you still have to be purged of them now, the punishment, the purging in uh, purgatory, the fires of purgatory, were every bit as awful and gruesome, or so it was believed, as those inflicted on souls in hell. But there's only one way out, and that's upwards to heaven. Now, the amount of time you spend in purgatory can be shortened by doing good works in life and then the living doing them for you after death. And the key good works are saying prayers and masses for the salvation of souls. The development of the concept of purgatory, that more or less coincides with when we start to find a great upsurge in monastic ghost story writing. Just so I'm clear, this idea of heaven, hell and purgatory... Are they medieval inventions? Well, heaven and hell, it's a time from the time of the early church onwards. But purgatory starts to emerge in the years around 1000 and it gets formalised by the 12th, 13th centuries. There is a biblical justification for it in, in Catholic theology for purgatory. Very slight, it must be said. But we'll talk about the fate of purgatory at the Reformation. But also, it, I think it deals with a psychological and a deep emotional need to connect with and care for the dead, that they're still very much part of your world, still very much... You, it's an is it an expression of grief that you still feel you can do something for a dead family member, for someone you love after their death? Mm. It, it's, a, it's a fascinating subject. Okay. So we touched on the fact that um, a lot of these early ghost stories stem from monastic sources. Are there any English heritage monasteries, abbeys and priories that have got particular ghost stories connected with them? We have a number of monastic ghost story authors from English heritage sites, especially in northern England. We can go right back to Bede and, and, and his pages, you know, the great Anglo-Saxon historian, the Venerable Bede of his monastery at Jarrow. He, he records a couple of ghost stories, and we're looking at the 7th, early 8th century there. In the 12th century, um, the monks of Byland Abbey commissioned uh, one William, canon of the nearby Augustinian Priory of Newburgh, they're both in Yorkshire, to write a history of English affairs, and its pages are punctuated with various tales of the supernatural. Jumping forward a, a century or so, the 13th century monastic chronicler Matthew Paris, a monk of St Albans, describes a ghostly tournament of knights at Roach Abbey in Yorkshire and uh, it's said to occur in 1236 and these spectral armoured knights emerge from the ground and biffed each other for a few days before returning from whence they came. The 14th century chronicle owned by the Augustinians at uh, Lanacos Priory in Cumbria. It was written elsewhere but it, it passes into the ownership of the, of, of the canons at uh, at Lanacost. And it's got several 
ghost stories in its pages, some of which are actually genuinely horrific. And then there's the ones I know best of all, uh, the 12 stories written by a monk of Byland Abbey in around about 1400. And as we'll see, one is actually partially set within the monastery's own cloister. Mm, yes, we'll get onto that one in, in uh, a, a few minutes. What do these stories tell us about medieval beliefs about death and the afterlife at the time? Well, for the most part, they're reaffirming the efficacy of the prayers for the release of souls from the pains of purgatory. You know, it's a point I was making earlier mm. on. If you go to Byland, for instance, you'll see that in addition to the high altar where daily high mass was celebrated, there are also numerous subsidiary altars against the east end of the church there and also in its transept chapels. And that's where the monks would have said daily private commemorative masses for the souls of the Abbey's benefactors to secure their everlasting salvation. And graves were strategically located within monasteries. You can still see it in Byland on processional pathways, close to altars. That was to increase the chances of monks saying prayers for the souls of the person they commemorated. And by and large, you'll see that medieval monastic ghost stories reflect these core religious beliefs, these core monastic beliefs. The ghosts that appear are the troubled spirits of the departed who need a little bit of extra help on their way to paradise. That's additional prayers and masses or the righting of an, a wrong, an unconfessed wrong, an unconfessed sin at the time of their death. Why do you think there's this extra effort to provide prayer for, for the dead? It almost seems like the monks are looking for work to do and, well, prayer for the dead is one thing that they can be doing. Well, prayer is at the core of the purpose of monasticism. Entering a monastery in the first place, it seems to be a way of living the angelic life here on earth, the heavenly life on earth, to secure your personal salvation. And by the time of the first millennium, when we get a spate of monasteries being founded, it's a time when you do have the concept of purgatory being established. And also, these great lords who are founding monasteries know that their violence, the bloodshed they're associated with, their various sexual wrongdoings, their failure to maintain their vow of protecting people who are dependent on them has really imperiled the everlasting salvation of their soul. And unless they make recompense for this, spiritual recompense for this, they run a real risk of burning for all eternity in hell. And one way you get around this is to found a monastery. Now, that is in itself a good work, and the monks will pray for your soul, but they will also undertake other good works on the behalf of all Christians, you know, the distribution of charity, provision of hospitality. Yeah. And then other benefactors will make gifts to monasteries as well, grants of land. And it will often be said in the, the, the opening clause of a charter making a gift of land to a monastery will often say, this is for the health of my soul, i.e. I'm making this, I am generously giving to the monastery and in return, you will pray for my soul, the soul of my family, the soul of all the faithful departed. So there's a cyclical societal spiritual thing going on there where people sort of are depending on the monks to sort of stick up for them after they've died if they didn't have perfect lives. Yeah, in some ways you could drive medieval monasteries as being prayer factories yeah. of the Middle Ages. It sounds about right. You know, the monks are daily 
churning out you know eight times a day they gather in their choir stalls to mm. sing the services they're celebrating daily high mass and then they're celebrating individual private masses for benefactors to be perfectly honest you have to understand death if you're to understand medieval monasteries if you're to bring medieval monasteries to life we talked about life and death there. They appear to be two things that are very separate, but there is this term called a revenant, and this is to do with ghostly scripture. Can you tell us what a revenant is? Yeah, well, most of the ghosts that you find in monastic ghost stories are, are, are ethereal spirits, and they appear to somebody with an explicitly religious and pious purpose, i.e. say prayers for my soul, or right or wrong on my behalf so I can escape the pains of purgatory and find peace in heaven. But revenants are a completely different kettle of fish. The term comes from French meaning one who returns, and they probably have their origins in the supernatural beliefs of early medieval northern Europe and Scandinavia. Unlike the ethereal ghosts that appear in most monastic and medieval ghost stories, these have solid corporeal bodily form. They rise from their graves and are capable of doing physical harm. They rape, maim and kill. Several tales of revenants were set down by William of Newburgh, who I mentioned earlier. And they often involve men who've lived evil lives. They have characteristics in common with vampires, who were very much an invention of the, uh, of the Enlightenment of the 18th century. But you, know, you can see threads of continuity there. They're blood-gorged. They try and dig themselves out of graves. They're associated with horrible, terrible smells. They agitate dogs. You know, dogs are alarmed at their approach. And they cause outbreaks of pestilence. They really are evil, and they neither seek nor can be appeased by the kinds of pious services that the ethereal ghosts are seeking. I mean, instead, the medieval church could provide rituals that protected against them, but it was ultimately, the ultimate skin was the annihilation of their remains. That was by decapitation, dismemberment, or burning. And they sound, obviously, pretty scary because it's actually the actual dead person coming back as a physical presence not just sort of this wispy thing that goes boo i can understand how that would be really frightening but the um, ruin of byland abbey in north yorkshire which you touched on earlier is home to a story of a revenant can you tell us a bit more about what happens there it is indeed, and one of the stories, uh, the stories are written around about 1400 by, uh, by a monk of Byland. One of the stories tells of a local priest called James Tankerley, who after his death is buried in the cloister walk at Byland by the entrance of the chapter house. Now that's a really, really prestigious location to be buried actually. You know, the monks would pass over it every day and it's it's a strategic location for a grave. So people would say prayers for your soul. But actually, um, I don't think Tankley deserved it, to be honest. His corpse is described as rising at night and it travels the six miles to Cold Kirby where Tankley had been priest. And when he gets there, this revenant gouges out the eye of his former mistress or concubine. 
Well, as you can probably imagine, all this leaves the monks rather troubled and scared, and the story recounts how they exhumed Tankley's corpse and coffin and plunged it into a nearby lake, uh, that's Gormaya, and the oxen dragging the cart um, with Tankley's foul remains upon it are described as being so frightened that they bolt and almost drown. It's chilling stuff. Goodness. So the monks actually become part of the story themselves? They are indeed, yeah. And there's a, there's a couple of other um, ghost stories that are, are set within monasteries. So one of William of Newburgh's tales is partly set at Malrose Abbey. That's a great Cistercian monastery in the Scottish borders. And several other stories as well mention the ghosts of priests and monks. And although the priest isn't a revenant and he's basically wanting to get forgiveness for poloining a silver spoon from his monastery, it shows that even if you're under monastic vows, if you die with unconfessed sin on your soul, you're going to have a tough time in the afterlife. At least go to purgatory, where you'll be purged of that sin in great spiritual pain. Who is the architect of this um, fantastic story then, of these 12 ghost stories from Blyland Abbey? Well, we don't know. It's an anonymous monk. We can tell by the content of the stories that they were written in around about 1400. They mentioned the reign of Richard II, for instance, has already been in the past. The style of the handwriting is also consistent with that. The stories are really interesting because they're very, very much a local collection and they seem to have been gathered from oral tradition. Ten of them are actually set in the, the fields, lanes, villages that um, surround Byland. So that, you know, there's a very, very strong local flavour to them, which if you know the neighbourhood and you know some of the lanes and you know the villages, like, for instance, the mention of Cold Kirby and Ampleforth occurs in several of them. There's even mention of places like Bradford and uh, there's one of the more distant ones uh, involves someone called Richard Roundtree who goes on pilgrimage to the great shrine of St James at Santiago in northern Spain. And whilst on his pilgrimage in, in northern Spain, he sees the the ghost of his stillborn or possibly aborted son who has been buried in a sock without being named and therefore can't find uh, peace in heaven and another one's set down in Exeter I think but for the most part they're very very local. Did you say the author is basically not known for all these stories? The author's not known, but they're rediscovered in the 1920s. They come to widespread attention thanks to an article published in the English Historical Review in 1922. That's a that's a top-flight journal. You know, getting something published in the English Historical Review is, is pretty prestigious. And then when you find out who the author is, you won't be surprised at all. The, the stories were transcribed and published by one Montague Rhodes James. Uh, he was one of the great medievalists of the early 20th century. He was a Cambridge Don, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Cambridge, then Provost of Eton. So these stories really, really would have appealed to James. And you, by the time he'd transcribed them and published them, he'd all, in 1922, he'd already published a number of collections of ghost stories, uh, the ghost stories of an antiquary, for instance, uh, and one of my proudest possessions, indeed, is the first edition of those stories, and then more ghost stories of an antiquary. So he was already firmly established as a, as a ghost story writer by then, uh, and, and, and he wrote the stories as a kind of an entertainment, both for himself and his, for his friends at Cambridge and, and the schoolboys at 
eaten. And he, and, and he actually comments on the stories about um, some of them having the Scandinavian flavour, which fits with the Revenant story that I was talking about, and, or, you know, and, the, and the Scandinavian influence that persisted until quite late into the Middle Ages in parts of Northern England. You've mentioned the, the Revenants there for Byland, but are there any other English heritage sites particularly associated with the idea of Revenants, these undead figures coming back to haunt the living? Well, there are indeed, but the one I'm thinking of isn't so much stories of Revenants, but actual tangible physical evidence of belief in them. And it comes from the deserted medieval village of Warham Percy. That's about 25 miles away from Byland, up in North Yorkshire. And the evidence is provided by analysis of human remains recovered from archaeological excavation of unconsecrated ground on the fringes of the settlement there. Now, they date from around about 1100 to 1400, I think. And the remains are all disarticulated. They've all been broken up. And one of the explanations had been that, well, this is basically crisis, that the scavenging, they're cannibalising the remains of people who've died as a consequence of famine. And sadly, that did happen in the Middle Ages. But actually, no, the pattern of butchering just doesn't conform with that. And instead, it shows post-mortem treatment that suggests, the, for instance, the deliberate removal of the heart, decapitation, a dismemberment. And it's all consistent with descriptions in written sources about how the bodies of the corpses of supposed revenants were being treated. Right. So there was an actual fear that this person, whoever it was who was buried, could rise whole again and torment the living. So in order to stop that from happening, you have to split the body up. Absolutely, yeah. You know, and it's like you have to annihilate the remains. You have to make it impossible. And, you know, from elsewhere in Europe, we've got evidence of bodies being staked to the ground, a metal stake driven through the body to pin it to the ground, or very, very heavy weights being placed on top of a body, or the body being buried face downwards. So, you know, it can't dig its way out of the grave. It digs further into the grave. And there's an intriguing story from Binham Priory in Norfolk. And a prior of another monastery is sent there because he's gone mad from overstudy. So that's a bit of a warning to people. You know, give yourself a break. It's not good <laughs> to spend all your time with books. And uh, he drives the brethren at Binham bonkers because of his mad raving you know he's a great annoyance but when he dies he's buried in chains and i did wonder if that's because they feared you know you you know chaining him up so he cannot move is it because they feared that he'd come back and haunt them it's an interesting question we've covered then this historical fact of bodies being dismembered at warren percy it's not a story, but it's it become, in some respects, a kind of a story, one that sends shivers down your spine. Were there other types of ghosts who are believed to be harmful in the medieval ghost literature? Well, as I said, most of them are ethereal and they've got specific purposes. And they certainly can't do you spiritual harm. And, you know, even though people are clearly frightened by them and invoke the name of Christ as uh, protection and that of the saints. But it's interesting in the Byland stories that we do get a sense that 
having a ghostly apparition and performing the services demanded of it could actually leave you a bit out of sorts. In several of the stories, the human protagonists are left in a terrible state of malaise, languishing in bed, sometimes gravely ill after their ghostly encounters. And, 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 and it's clear that they were genuinely frightened. They invoke the spiritual protection of Christ and his saints. And in one of the stories, a tailor who rejoices in the surname of Snowball, which was apparently a, a North Yorkshire surname recorded until quite recently, is so terrified of the ghost that confronts him that he assembles a formidable spiritual armory consisting of a crucifix, gospel books, manuscripts with holy texts inscribed upon them and the relics of various saints. Wow, that's really interesting. So almost um, mental anguish and uh, fright at having encountered uh, a supposed real or imagined ghost. Maybe there's a mental health aspect in there as well. What do you think? Right, you know, yeah, you know, the Byland stories are interesting because to some extent they show this, so many of the ghosts are ethereal, you know, and first of all they take on, they take on various forms, they can be shape-shifting, some of them are horses, dogs, goats, even a flapping bit of canvas and a bundle of burning hay, and then they take on a human, a human shape when they tell of the deeds that need to be done of them. But this idea that they can cause some kind of physical harm, which you don't find in many of the other medieval ghost stories, you know, they're, they're, they're certainly frightening. The ghosts are certainly frightening to the people who, who encounter them, but, you know, that they regain their composure and do what's demanding of them. But this idea that they can just leave you depleted is really, really quite interesting. And is that somehow, is it showing to some extent a melding of the normal pious ghost story with some of the Scandinavian, Northern European traditions of revenants? It's a really, really interesting subject and a, a worthy of exploring, I think. Yes, it takes it into a different realm, doesn't it? With something that's ethereal, but has physical power and uh, ability yeah. to affect mentally and perhaps even affect objects or something as well. We know that the rejection of Catholicism and the introduction of Protestantism by Henry VIII was a time of immense religious and cultural change. What impact did the Reformation have on people's belief in ghosts? Yeah, well, the advent of Protestantism it was supposed to have an impact on people's belief in ghosts. You know, Henry's church isn't really Protestant, but certainly by the time of Edward VI and then under Queen Elizabeth I, we really do have a Protestant church. And various Protestant cleric, leading clerics at that time just reject the belief in ghosts. And it's all part of the what they consider the superstition of Catholicism. Purgatory and the value of good works are rejected by Protestantism. Your soul is saved by your faith in Christ alone and you either get on the on that basis you either go to heaven or you go to hell. Mm. A real real rule change there then. There was indeed yeah you know Luther Martin Luther the you know the catalyst for the European Reformation to begin with has an ambivalent attitude towards purgatory but eventually rejects it. But it's rejected in Protestantism. Now, as I said, it still remains a part of Roman Catholicism to this day. Hmm. But some scholars would argue, therefore, that 
belief in ghosts becomes a kind of one of the many fronts in the 16th and 17th century culture wars between uh, Catholics and Protestants. Basically, Catholics continue to believe in them. You know, I've read some Catholic ghost stories. English Catholics are still telling essentially medieval-style ghost stories into the 18th century, whereas Protestants reject them, but it's nowhere near so clear-cut. Belief in ghosts and the supernatural actually thrives in Protestant England, but so often without the protective magic and belief structure provided by Catholicism. You've done your recent podcast on witchcraft trials. Now, they're extremely accurate. I think there are two people excused for witchcraft in medieval England. It's a phenomenon of the Protestant period in English history. You know, in Roman Catholicism, to protect yourself from witches, all you had to do was say a a few prayers, sprinkle some holy water, call upon the protection of saints, use some relics. In Protestantism, you don't have that protection. Bad things are happening. You give it a supernatural origin. Therefore, it has to be diabolic. What do you do? You kill the supposed perpetrator. Right. I'm starting to understand why these revenants or suspected revenants, people who died, were being cut up at Warren Percy. So you've been sort of touching a little bit there about my next question, Michael, which was going to be around how the ghost stories develop after the medieval period and into the 18th and 19th centuries. How do they change? Well, ghost stories become a genre from the late 18th century onwards, don't they? And, you know, the medieval ghost stories I've been talking about occur within the context of other texts. It's not a a specialist subset of literature. They occur within either moralistic writings or as, as an aside in chronicles, you know. But ghost story writing as a genre really comes into its own in English literature from about the 18th century. But slightly before that, you get antiquarians, early scholars of England's monastic past telling ghost stories, late 16th and early 17th century antiquarians. And several of them, it's really interesting. It's about an apparition of a ghost that appears to someone who's wrecking the monastery and tells the person to desist from doing it or something bad will happen to them, which sure enough does happen. There's one from Netley Abbey recorded in the 17th century. And um, and I think there's one um, set down by a, a Yorkshire Catholic gentleman in the 17th century involving the theft of an altar from a former monastery. But you get, you know, there's several of them. And then, as I said, you know, ghost story writing as a genre starts to flourish in the late 18th century. And monks, nuns and monastic ruins are a major source of inspiration. Now, this being 18th century England, a lot of these early stories are explicitly anti-Catholic and anti-monastic. And they're very much informed by the so-called black legend. That's, you know, the idea of all the evil deeds that Catholics got up to in the Middle Ages. You know, their torture chambers, deflowering virgins and things like that, but given a supernatural slant to it as well. And now we start to get, you know, various ghost stories. And, you know, a a classic of the kind that I was on about is Richard Warner's Netley Abbey. That's a a monastery under English Heritage's care in, in, in Hampshire. And Netley Abbey, a Gothic ghost story, it's published in 1795. And it's a truly gruesome tale of violence, coercion, ghostly occurrence and live burial that consolidated and really added to the supernaturalism that had been accruing around the site. Furness Abbey in uh, Cumbria also provides 
gothic ghostly inspiration. It's visited by Anne Radcliffe, the gothic romancer and travel writer, who in her mind's eye visualises a procession of ethereal white-clad Cistercian monks. You know, I've got various anthologies of medieval monastic ghost stories or have come across them in various texts. And, you know, some of the revenant stories, you know, you know they're a little bit shocking. And But you recognise so many of them as being an archetype of, of, of their moral, of their didactic purpose. But when ghost stories emerge as a genre and when they've been divorced from their religious and moral universe, informing them and giving you a, a clear-cut message from how to live your life and how to save your soul, they do, I think, start to become more disturbing, more psychologically affecting and just genuinely more frightening. Yes. Well, we'll talk about some of the more recent ghost stories which perhaps feel that way. Presumably, these would be based on eyewitness accounts. Do you have any really chilling ones from English heritage sites from recent history? I mean, it's it, just Google any English heritage site and put ghost after it. And I am absolutely sure something will come up. Indeed, I, I did an, a media interview recently about Rufford Abbey. And one of the first things the journalist wanted to talk about was supposed sightings of a ghostly monk. And I just think that gives an idea of how widespread this association of ruins and ghosts is. And it's something that starts in the 18th and early 19th centuries. But I asked colleagues in preparation for this podcast if they could think of any any stories. And there's a supposedly a spectral drummer boy at Richmond Castle in Yorkshire. One that I was already aware of was sighting of ethereal monks at, uh, at Hales Abbey. And some people claim to have captured them on film on, and photographs. And actually, given that the monks look like they're wearing black, it doesn't really work, given that these were Cistercian monks and would have been wearing white. And, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, then there's... This is my absolute favourite, actually. Lord Howard de Walden apparently gave up his tenancy of Audley End in 1912 when he saw a dog appearing through the walls of his billiards table, which then danced around the room to the terror of all those there. And his wife, Margarita, found Audley End so creepy that she insisted on moving out shortly after they wed in 1912. And in fiction, you know, uh, just a couple of years ago, a few years ago, English Heritage published a, a collection of ghost stories inspired by sites such as Kenilworth, Audley, Dover, and even York Cold War nuclear bunker. So this association with ruins and historic sites really flourishes to this day. Yeah. What's your favourite ghost story from an English Heritage site? Well, I have to be honest, it's got to be the Byland stories. I really am a medievalist and I specialise in the Cistercians. Byland was a Cistercian monastery. And the M.R. James connection is also quite special for me. Mm. I first read his ghost stories almost 40 years ago. And as well as providing a pleasing terror, it was the stories of illuminated manuscripts, stained glass windows, monastic ruins buried Anglo-Saxon crowns that really stirred my historical imagination. And I think it sowed seeds that led to a lifelong fascination in medieval history, art and architecture that was to blossom and actually lead to my job today. 
Thank um, you, Mr. James. <laughs> absolutely, and and in your many appearances on our podcast so far. <laughs> um, <laughs> lastly, then, Michael, what do ghost stories you think tell us about the human condition? You talked earlier, obviously, about the monks using yeah. these stories as a kind of way of almost controlling society, um, a didactic reason. But um, it goes a bit further than that, doesn't it? Yeah, and uh, you've touched on something very important there, that the type of ghost story we have reflects the underlying intellectual spirit, the actual understanding of the universe of the time which they're written. And for, and for instance, you know, I've got a couple of friends who really define themselves by their rationalism and their rejection of belief and superstition. And they actually get really quite offended by the idea of ghost stories. It's, you know, it's challenging their firm science-grounded understanding of the universe. But actually, I don't think there's any reason to take offence from ghost stories. I think they speak of enduring bonds between the living and the dead. They provide fascinating insights into belief, culture and society and how this has evolved over the centuries. There's some great works of literature in ghost stories and I think they provide insights into what makes us human. You know, as a historian, I'm going to conclude with a quote which my colleague and friend Jeremy Ashby gave to me and it's by the great Cambridge 20th century historian G.M. Trevelyan. The poetry of history lies in the quasi-miraculous fact that once on this earth, once on this familiar spot of ground, walked other men and women, as actual as we are today, thinking their own thoughts, swayed by their own passions, but now all gone, one generation vanishing after another gone as utterly as we ourselves shall shortly be gone like ghosts at cockcrow. Wow, that's pretty powerful stuff, I must admit. And I suppose on that note, we must also go. Thanks for talking to us, Michael. I hope you all sleep well and aren't too disturbed by this, and also that you get to enjoy a few pleasing terrors over the Christmas season. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. For more spooky tales, the English Heritage book, Eight Ghosts, is out now. Next week, we'll investigate another chilling story of how Dover Castle's Great Tower may be linked to the murder of the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1170. They cut him down with their swords and, shocked at what they'd done, they fled into the night. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>